0: Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshupe.
1: And I'm Coach John Shoop.
0: John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years.
1: And Marcia is an author, theologian, and minister.
0: And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time.
1: On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. In the first half of June, we met with Victoria Jackson, a sports historian at Arizona State University and a former Division I scholarship runner at UNC Chapel Hill and Arizona State. This summer, she wrote an article that appeared in the Boston Globe with the headline, Cancel the Fall College Football Season. The subline underneath it said, schools need to stop fighting to preserve a rotten model that takes unfair advantage of young black men and their talents. Well, here we are at the end of the summer in the middle of August, and two of the Power Five conferences have already canceled football for the fall, the Big Ten and the Pac-10. The other three conferences, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, as of now, are still forging ahead with the college football season. Interestingly, the University of North Carolina is in the ACC conference, one of the conferences that is trying to forge ahead with the football season. in Marcia?
0: Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz called off the um, school year that they had hoped to have in terms of face-to-face and residential living on campus. They've now gone to all online learning Um, After four different outbreaks in four different dorms, one was a fraternity house and three were residential dormitories. And so, but the football team says they're still going to go forward.
1: And in fact, Mac Brown today, the head football coach at the University of North Carolina came out and said, you know, just about all of our guys are on online classes only. So really, this doesn't affect us that much.
0: Yep. There's some pretty uh, pretty stubborn viewpoints out there that somehow football should play by different rules. That's nothing new. Why be different during a global pandemic?
1: Well, I say we dig into our conversation with Dr. Victoria Jackson, who, well, about two months ago, was calling for the cancellation of the college football season.
2: So I'm Victoria Jackson. I'm a former collegiate and professional runner. I'm um, a clinical assistant professor of history in the School of Historical, Philosophical and Religious Studies at Arizona State University, which is a mouthful. Um, So I basically say I'm a sports historian. Um, and I, yeah, I share the Carolina connection. Um, I was an undergraduate student at the University of North Carolina, but grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Um, and so my experiences at UNC as an athlete inform my work, um, and then also that historical lens, um, spending lots of time in the UNC archives, actually. I think UN, the, the story of intercollegiate athletics at the University of North Carolina is a great lens and um, window into all sorts of themes in American history, as well as um, the major tensions and issues in big-time college sports.
1: You have recently wrote an article that appeared in the boston globe fascinating article that we'll certainly share with all our listeners and it's called cancel the fall college football season and uh, what are some of the there's many different ways to go in this but do you think that there will be a fall college football season and why would you want to cancel it
2: Uh, Well, I don't know if there will be a fall college football season.
1: Um, You had to guess. Would you think that there is?
2: Oh, I mean, man, you're asking a historian this to project (laughs) about the future. I will be very surprised. Um, If there is a season at all, it will look very different from what we typically see. There won't be fans. It will be a reduced schedule. We'll probably have a lot of canceled games. There may be some schools that don't play at all. Um, And so my hope is that rather than this patchwork kind of doomsday kind of disaster, you know, we're watching as this whole thing unravels. Rather than that, we just stop, (laughs) do the responsible thing as educators and people who claim to care about the health and well-being of young people and and just stop the madness and and not have a season Um, when there's so much money bound up in it. That makes things more complicated. So... I, as of today, I would say we might see some games, but we we absolutely will not have the, the typical season with fans that we normally would have.
0: Okay. <laughs> we both are so like, eager to
1: respond. No, no. Well, <laughs> it's interesting because uh, we'll talk about your call to cancel the season, and part of this call to cancel the season is to reflect on the values of college football as it is right now. I happen to think the season is going to be postponed until January and everybody's going to play in the spring, but postponing the season might not answer some of the issues that you're interested in addressing.
0: Yeah. That's one of the things that I really just really appreciated about your excellent article was you are, you're inviting revenue athletics and, 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 the collegiate realm to see this as an opportunity to actually come clean about some things. So I wonder if in a way, it sounds like you, it's not so much about what, you know, hopefully you can play the football season later. It's more like, Hey, this is a chance. So talk a little bit about, I mean, number one, what are you inviting schools to do? And number two, Is there a chance in God's green earth that 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 could possibly be how schools would look at this?
2: I, you know, I'm an academic, so I wait and see how things are playing out. And I became increasingly concerned that the rush, um, the focus, the preoccupation with having this fall season, getting athletes back on campus, um, that that would quash all the momentum that has been building over the last Two decades, but really the last five years, um, to have a reckoning in college football. Um, and I wrote this piece not for people who work in intercollegiate athletics. I w- wrote this piece for university administration, university presidents who are looking to be innovative and, and make history and do the right thing. And also my fellow academics who are, you know, people who study civil and human rights, who are committed to anti racism. And so I, what I mean by the quashing is the growing athletes' rights movement, the building antitrust challenge to big-time college sports, um, that for too long, the hypocrisy and the fraud of amateurism has played out and been protected, and it's, it's reached a breaking point. And rather than it just be broken, and schools kind of grapple and deal with that, they take ownership of something that has been long broken and rotten and pledge to fix it, to turn inward. You know, I, I had been reading all these university statements, committing to anti-racism and building curriculum and training for faculty and students. And I, it, it made me very frustrated because schools should be looking inward too. And kind of <laughs> having this honest, sober moment where they realize college sports are one of the institutions in our society that contributes to the undervaluing of Black lives, that perpetuates inequality and injustice. And so, um, you know, I, I think football re- represents a ticking time bomb with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, with the tragic, racially disparate educational outcomes, um, the problem of the sole pathway and relationship with the NFL when. Every single player drafted in the most recent drafts comes from the NCAA, and 75% of those drafted come from the Power Five, so I'm really focused on the Power Five here. I see it as categorically different from other Power Five sports, and of course, the rest of the sports across the NCAA, and so rather than just being one of these academics that complains and points out all the problems, I do offer a solution, and that is spinning off college football, and, and we can talk about that too.
1: Well, I'm interested in that right now, and I <laughs> I, I, I would agree with what you said. The Power Five for our listeners is uh, the Pac-12, the Big Ten, the ACC, the SEC, and the – I'm missing Big, one. Big Ten. Just I 10. said Big Ten. The five major athletic conferences, mm-hmm. um, and that consists of 66 schools right now. And I, too, could see those 66 schools breaking away. Now, Victoria, as you see those schools breaking away, do you see them still being, or if that's what you see, something new, do you see it still being under the umbrella of the NCAA or something completely different?
2: I don't. I think if I'm focused here on football and a privatization of football, my Suspicion is that the NCAA would fight that and oppose that, and that university presidents don't actually realize they power the power they have to do this. Um, And um, you know, maybe the rest of intercollegiate athletics remains within the NCAA. I I don't really care either way (laughs) what happens with that. The NCAA is good at running championships. That that's what they do. They can continue to do that and do that well. And if Mark Emmert wants to become commissioner of some new, um, professional collegiate football league. That's great. I don't know if the schools would want that, um, or these new teams would want that, that would get sorted out. Um, what, what I see as a potential solution is that these football teams are spun off, that they're privatized, that they become professional, that the athletes are employees. They, um, have compensation packages. They have unionized labor rights and scholarships can be included in those compensation packages, but they should be lifetime scholarships So that those athletes don't have to attend school when they're playing in the season or getting ready in the preseason. They can attend in the offseason or even Once their eligibility is done if they don't go on to play in the NFL and then I don't think the school really ends up losing much of anything because those teams will still be in arm's reach of the community, of the school, the marketing, those relationships, the songs, the name, all of that will remain the same. So all the kind of marketing and branding that the schools get in this relationship will still be there, and the athletes will finally get what they deserve. That this kind of wealth transfer from revenue generating sports to non-revenue generating sports. I don't see the loss of that as tragic. I, th- I see that as just. <laughs> um, and as a former beneficiary of big time college sports, I was a scholarship athlete at UNC and um, I was on academic money in my PhD program at ESU when I competed for the Sun Devils. Um, those big time opportunities I got were paid for by the athletes bringing in that money So if this means a scaling back um, and and a more of an actual scholastic model of sport and the rest of intercollegiate athletics, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. For too long, everybody but the players playing big time football have been benefiting from the system. Um, And that's why I feel a responsibility to help be part of the solution to it as someone who had benefited from it.
0: before we get too far down the road of like a potential vision for an alternative I want to stick with this opportunity that you're inviting really college presidents to see college presidents people people don't really always realize this but college presidents are the kind of decision making table of the NCAA they're often college presidents are cast as kind of like we can't help it. It's just what the NCAA is doing, but it's like, they are the NCAA. Um, and so what you're inviting them to is, is some integrity, um, around the commitment of a an, an institution of higher learning around things like, um, you know, human dignity, um, fairness, um, the The opportunity for everybody to be them their full, full selves and full flower. Um, and I wonder, what is it that you think you're somebody that's you know deep into the world of academia and the politics of a big time campus? What is it that you think would actually be compelling to college presidents? It's not like they haven't known about this little you know kind of twisted relationship they have to revenue sports what what makes it different what makes this time different that they would actually be compelled to to change and to give up such a lucrative situation
2: they're facing a huge crisis right now um because of the pandemic um the amount of money that the the budgeting of all of the programmings and plans and facilities construction, um, you know, it's such an incredibly large crisis right now in part because state legislatures have really defunded higher education. So the university presidents who've been really innovative in fundraising have had to look to different ways to fund their universities and make continue to keep education excellent for young people in American society. And they feel such a strong commitment to making sure higher ed survives in an excellent way in the United States when states have basically abandoned higher ed. Um, So whether it's through real estate, donors, um, all sorts of different ways universities have come up with new means of generating revenue, that is more vulnerable than a, than a paycheck from the state, especially if our economic recession dives into a depression. And so, you know, it, it's not from a place of optimism and doing the right thing. I think it's more from the place of the sober reality, um, kind of the rose tinted glasses are gone when you're in such a major crisis. And maybe those presidents who are, thinking about building a better model for higher education will include this, this rotten dynamic in college sports as part of their future plan coming out of this broader pandemic crisis. So it's, it's not an optimistic take that a university leader will take this on. It's more from the, the kind of depressed reality of the economic situation higher education is in right now. So in
0: a way you're, you're kind of saying this is a, almost like a pragmatic invitation. Like this is actually a pretty conducive time. Um, I'm just going to describe something that I think John and I have witnessed um, in collegiate revenue sports. And then I just want you to like pick it apart or say, yeah, that's true. Let's move on or whatever. <laughs> um, college presidents are fundraisers. That's what they do. That's their job. And, um, we spent a lot of time when we were, um, John was coaching in college in recruiting events and part of the, the kind of narrative that is so compelling that, you know, John could probably say it in his sleep, you know, because he had to say it to so many players is this is a great opportunity for you. Um, this is, this, um, this coming to college to play football for X university is a great opportunity. Um, it's a chance of a lifetime. Um, you're, we're going to care about you. We're going to give you um, a great education. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to change your life by, by you having this diploma or this university's name along with you um, for the rest of your life. And I wonder, and, and college presidents shovel out that, I won't say the word, all the time to families and, and young men. In order for them to take the step you're asking, they have to admit that, they, that that's a bunch of bull crap, right? And it seems like that almost might be the toughest step for them to take, to say that there's a mythology that maybe they even sort of believed. I know we sort of did. Um, but I think that's hard for white people sometimes to lay down the mythology that made them feel virtuous, that made them feel like this is a really good thing and I'm you know, i actually doing something to help you. Being, then having to switch that narrative and be like, actually I've been ex- extracting value from you And this is not fair. And, um, I'm going to step back because I'm actually hurting you. I'm not helping you. Um, I'm just putting that out there. Like that asking them to, to flip the script like that, that's a formidable mountain to climb. Do you think it comes down to something that basic or am I missing something?
2: No, I think that's right. Um, You know, the mythology here is that playing at college sport is a lottery ticket for so many athletes and that um, it's the American dream that, you know, this meritocracy, and you can use sport as a pathway to then earn this world-class education and turn that into career. And certainly that happens, but it doesn't happen nearly as often as it should and across all sports uniformly. So. I fear that athletes like myself, um, you know, grew up in those segregated Chicago suburbs that you experienced on the North Shore with, you know, a public high school that looked like a private academy with all the sports offerings that weren't available, you know, just a couple towns over, Um, that, that that narrative is more in line with the experience of students like myself that yes, I had the idyllic college experience. I earned a scholarship um, and used that as an opportunity to turn pro in both school and sport, right? I turned pro and ran professionally, and I also have a PhD and now I'm an academic. But there shouldn't be as many, like all the barriers that exist for athletes in sports like football shouldn't be there. Um, it's like almost like they're running a steeplechase and I'm running like a flat 3K while they're running a steeplechase in what it's like to navigate balancing academics and athletics when it comes to you know my sport distance running cross country and track and a football player Um, and you know the hours per week that i devoted to sport was a a small fraction of what a typical revenue generating athlete would have to devote i did not go to academic advising and athletics because i said no (laughs) Um, and i had the power to do that (laughs) whereas um, I know some of the students who played football and basketball at Carolina while I was there did not have that power. So I was empowered to make my own academic decisions and a lot of the athletes in other sports are not. And so, it, and so frequently, um, you know, athletes like myself are almost used like a shield to protect this model, we're used to point to the athletes that are able to navigate this successfully without looking at the reality, the differential reality between what it is to be a college football player to power five school and an athlete in another sport. And we, we shouldn't be used as a shield. We need to take that off and and really have, have a clean, sober assessment of what this really looks like on the ground for today's young people trying to play
1: Big Time College football. I think one of the statistics that you uh, shared in your article that was in the Globe, you talked about Louisiana State, the football national championship team. And the undergraduate population is made up of under 5%, 4.6% are black men. Yet the football and basketball teams were 77.6%, and only a third of those athletes end up graduating. I would even argue that those that did graduate, at least it was my experience at North Carolina and at Purdue, getting a degree is not the same thing as getting an education. (laughs) They're almost going to classes that are laid out for them, going to academic advisors, and they, they literally just have to paint by the numbers. And if they just take these certain steps, lo and behold, in four and a half years, you get a degree. Do you know of any athletes outside of football and basketball that kind of experience those same restrictions? I heard you say that you did not. Uh, You were never told what class you had to take. I've had students that i was coaching who wanted to take a certain class often and well no football players are not allowed to take that class well, well why not what happened to the uh, promise of I, I i get the education i i want no you get the education i want you to have do you know in outside of football and basketball did you experience any athletes like that
2: when i tell the high school athletes um when they ask for recruiting advice this is when you have to ask the coaches who are recruiting you, what it looks like to be a student at that university um, because there's such variation both across schools and also across sports within a school. And um, actually I went back to my dissertation, which um, I pull from the UNC archives to write the history of big time college sports through the lens of women's intercollegiate athletics. But I'm talking about all of intercollegiate athletics. Um, And I used the papers of Francis Hogan to do that. And I was looking at um, when academic support units um, become entrenched in intercollegiate athletics. And at Carolina, and I, I like to use local stories to tell national trends. And so the Carolina story is illustrative of what's happening across the nation in the early 1980s. And the context is this first big academic fraud scandal at the University of Georgia when Jan Kemp, the whistleblower, um, pointed out all these athletes who could not read, um, who were graduating. <laughs> um, and it, it caused a huge scandal and also a moment of reckoning, at least within the academic space within intercollegiate athletics. It, it led to the formation of the Knight Mission on Intercollegiate Athletics, which was co-founded by Bill Friday, the UNC system president emeritus and also father of Theodore Hesburgh, um, president emeritus of Notre Dame. And so um, what happened at UNC is that um, Fordham was the chancellor at the time and he created a special commission to um, look at potential areas of problem where UNC could potentially have a similar academic fraud scandal. And this is where they really entrench academic, the irony here of course is They build a structure to prevent academic fraud and that's the structure that then perpetuates academic fraud at Carolina. Um, The system of academic counselors in athletics, tutoring support in athletics, study hall hours in athletics, and it's really this moment where we see athletes completely separated out from the rest of the general student body population so that they're eating with only athletes, they're living with only athletes, they're practicing with only athletes, they're attending classes with their teammates, and then they're getting study hall support and um, tutoring hours with other athletes. That's a problem. And schools to this day champion this as something that makes them excellent and um, use that as a recruiting tool to tell athletes to come here, we'll take care of you and support you in academics. But, but students should want <laughs> the general student body's experience of what it means to be a college student. They should be going to lectures. They should be participating in music. They should be doing study abroad um, and all of these other, you know, internship opportunities. Like the more you separate out athletes from other students, the less they're actually getting the. Exposure to what college really means for young people.
0: I'm gonna drop a term here that we've got to. So we we we're talking around it, but it's so much a part of the the ethos that the Knight Commission embodied, and Bill Friday, frankly, um, and the uh, approach that he took to a lot of of the ways that he addressed issues of racial disparities was let's put you over here so you can do it in your own space. You know, he was one of the people that wanted to create North Carolina central so that black students would have a, their own school. The, the, The term I want to drop is white supremacy culture, because what you're describing is a real paternalistic kind of, you can't really make it here like everybody else. So we're going to make a special area for you while we extract all this value from you. And I guess circling back to the question about college presidents to me for, we're talking about largely white men to really say, you're right. This is an opportunity. It's a chance for us to come clean about this. They're going to have to be people who are very um, have a, a deep degree of racial humility and understand that racism is about white supremacy. It, it's not about being mean to black people. It's about a culture that has created and exacerbated an entrenched disadvantage um, that is invisible to white people in a lot of ways. Um, and that is a tough, tough, step for white people again who loved a virtue signal about the way they are in relationship with people of color to say actually the way I've been in relationship with you all these years has been paternalistic, has been harmful, has been uh, demeaning, has been um, exploitive. And I guess I just wonder how many college presidents are out there <laughs> who've done any work and are and are kind of willing to have that kind of humility around their own power.
2: You know, going back to this moment at UNC, um, UNC was found to be in violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Um, and <laughs> then um, the Education and Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP sued you because they weren't forcing schools to actually implement affirmative action plans to desegregate their state systems. So the UNC system was one of um, the school systems identified. They were called Adams states. There were 10 states, um, nine were southern, and then also Pennsylvania. And so what happens at the same moment where we see an increase in the number of academically ineligible black athletes admitted who were not graduating. <laughs> um, we, we see the school submitting desegregation plans for nearly a decade that are rejected by Hugh. They're not doing enough to admit academically eligible but non-competitive black students into the flagship university of the state that's what matters here is that gaining admission to UNC Chapel Hill opens so many doors um, because of both the status that comes with attending the premier state uh, state institution, um, but also the exposure you get to your fellow students, to top academics, um, to scholarships and other opportunities. It, it opens so many doors. And the language I think is so key here and the way that, um, University administrators described, again, academically eligible but non competitive African American students. They would admit them, and this is a quote, as an experiment with a high risk probationary admissions program. And the students who were admitted under this program, um, they started with 50 in the early 70s, and by the late 70s, it grew to 200 they were graduating at a rate that was on par or better than the general student body. So 90% and upwards of 90%. So they were selling once they got a foot in the door at UNC Chapel Hill, because these were students who were typically in state who had gone to um, resource inferior schools within North Carolina that were still going through the process of desegregation and socioeconomic differences. But athletes who were ineligible academically. So not only were they non-competitive, they were also not meeting the Board of Trustees minimum standards for admission. They were getting in on a special talent or aptitude. So I think this really signals the way in which we think about the utility of black bodies at predominantly white institutions. When they show potential and promise academically, they're a risk. They're admitted probationary, They're dangerous. I mean, all this language that carries so much history with it. But when they show us a potential for special talent and give us something in return, right? Their athletic prowess that we can enjoy, the entertainment function, the way you feel great about your university when it's performing well in sport, that's a special talent. And I think that language is something that's carried forward to this day. It's not like it's a product of the past. It's certainly ever-present, especially at predominantly white institutions.
0: like state universities don't operate in a vacuum you know some of why young men of color you know have these different lanes they have to stay in to get in their state universities is because of the way pre-k preschool and and primary school and high schools are um public high schools are in in states so there's so much kind of interweaving of the way white supremacy has created this, this, um, this atmosphere of exploitation overlaid with a narrative of opportunity and meritocracy that then, you know, just the narrative is so deep that it's, it's very entrenched um, in communities of color as well that this is the way to get your college education. This is the way that you belong there. Um, When like our, our friend, Dr. Joseph Cooper says, you know, statistically a young man of color is more likely to be a doctor than a NFL football player, but that's not the narrative that churns out these kind of statistics that you're, that you're, Reciting here that have stood the test of time, we don't have them exactly, but we know That's that on most most college campuses, um, I think the average across the country is something like if, when you take out HBCUs, is something like two to three percent of the well, campus are are right. young men of color. But yet these football teams, it's more like sixty to seventy five percent.
1: Well, at Louisiana State, you said the right. undergraduate is four point six percent black men i actually my first inclination was that's pretty high that's higher than most. that that really was that's higher than most i mean i imagine if we go to colorado university or you know well
0: it doesn't matter uh, you know
1: anywhere else those numbers will be Mm -hmm. even less that's fascinating that's
2: a state population that's that um, has a large black population right. in, in the general state population. So about just over 32% of Louisiana is African-American. And so that means 16%-ish mm-hmm. um, of the population is black men. So in, comparatively, it's still a small fraction of what it should be if the purpose of a state institution is right. to be reflective of the greater population of the state and its student body. And those statistics come from Dr. Sean Harper at the University of Southern California. He directs the Race and Equity Center there.
0: Yes, yes, I'm familiar with Dr. Harper's work. So you, here we are, three white people, we have, <laughs> you know, I mean, you and I both have PhDs. John has has a master's. We've all benefited from, you know, the kind of metrics of success in these institutions um again is there i i love this kind of idea of this is a this is a healing opportunity this is a, an opportunity mm-hmm. to cultivate justice um is there any way to appeal to our various institutions um or institutions overall in a way that makes this look like actually an attractive an attractive proposal for for these white dominant
2: institutions? That is the question. Um, and I think, you know, I could say the predictable things like the more we talk about it and call it out, but the more likely, but that's silly too because people have been talking about this and people more prominent than I am have been calling this out. I mean, Pulitzer Prize winning historian <laughs> of the civil rights movement, Taylor Branch, turns his lens on to college sports, and he can't get these systems to nudge, and Harry Edwards has been on this beat since the beginning, so um, yeah. (laughs) Um, My next step is to to research more the spinning off thing. Um, You know, if these are people making business decisions, you should present the business case and get investors excited, and so that is my next step is to do more research on that. Um, Because at the end of the day, you can tinker with this around the edges as much as you like and keep it within college sports. And the experience that students have who play football won't change fundamentally. Um, And so if the goal is to make the experience better for those students, I've got to do everything I can to, to make the case that this system will benefit them, but also benefit um, those stakeholders, um, those who are committed to the status quo, that they'll actually benefit more <laughs> from this new model that I'm proposing. So that's, that's the next step is to, to make sure that is actually something that will benefit everyone, as I hope it does.
0: You know who she needs to talk to is Andy Schwartz about the historical <laughs> basketball league that they're trying to start. That's great. Right. They are they are starting it. Yeah, yeah. That's great.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you know Andy? I do. Um, yes, we have zoomed together on two different shows now, so that um, according I'm quoting Andy that means we're friends. We're Zoom friends. Um, <laughs> but. I mean, it's brilliant what they've done with, um, it, it's now called the Professional Collegiate League. Mm-hmm. Um, this, again, another alternative pathway to the pros, right? But this one's so brilliant in that you can get paid and get an That's education. Cool. right? And, and the other part, um, which we haven't spoken about here, is um, I really think amateurism inhibits education because it restricts the definition of what education can be. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned that I turned pro in my sport. I had no idea what it meant to turn pro in my sport. And I did it very poorly because it would be in violation of amateurism for me to take a professional career in sport seriously. So you're restricted to have those conversations. You can't talk to agents. You can't get advice on who to sign with or what company or what it looks like to manage money or to promote a brand. All of these things are like, gray area make athletics uncomfortable because it would mean the reality of what this is is training for pro sports Um, and and that is education like learning how to be a good professional athlete is the education that many of these athletes need myself included and so that's part of what they're doing with the professional collegiate league too is like you know Making that part of the training and and the workshops that these athletes have coming out of high school with the goal of making it to the nBA
0: yeah, we've long argued for that kind of you know, let's just say sports are it's a professional track you so let's teach people how to be in sports um, because it's it's a business, and there are best practices, and there are ways to navigate. And all the ways that we always saw of players being, um, you know, not able to talk to people who could actually be their advocates in what is a very confusing process. Um, they kind of go into it with a lot of disadvantage.
1: Or not being able to talk to people who could help them on the up and up. They certainly yeah. talk to them. And this is a whole other show perhaps, but (laughs) we talk about players being able to get paid where people make the assumption that players are not getting paid right now. Believe me, players are getting paid right now. It's the only person who didn't want prohibition repealed was Al Capone. The only person (laughs) who doesn't want this name, image, and likeness repealed are the schools that are pretty done gone good it giving players what they need financially under yeah. the system that we have right now.
0: That's part of it, but not. That's part That's of a it. whole nother show. Though. Yeah.
2: Well, but it, it underscores um, the way we devalue the brilliance and the excellence of athletes. And- mm you know, a majority of whom are black, who are the star athletes on these teams, you shouldn't have to be in a situation where you feel like you're doing something wrong to, to gain compensation for your talent and your skill. Um, that That is a problem. That is another way in which we're making usually black people feel bad about something they should, we're artificially saying that's wrong. And, and it's, It angers me so much that we aren't, you know, (laughs) accepting and celebrating the brilliance of the talent required to be a star athlete. We do that with musicians. We do that with artists. They're producing and creating beautiful art and so are athletes. And this like false high art, low art binary is another one of my beefs because it again is placing on a pedestal, typically those who are from privilege, you know, it's usually classical musicians. And and then the athletes are seen as something that doesn't take skill. It's brute talent. It's it's again, perpetuating these stereotypes that are obviously completely false. And then the, the added layer of like this underground economy around it that makes people feel even more guilty about what like it's, it's all just that's the last thing we should be doing <laughs> to young people. We shouldn't be making them feel good about themselves and their talents. And somehow we've managed to make it, make people feel worse about themselves.
0: <laughs> well, It's back to white supremacy. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I mean, white supremacy culture is very good at, um, perpetuating itself. And so whatever narrative needs to, you know, needs to be crafted to perpetuate itself, it will. And, you know, there's there's plenty of evidence that, um, you know, we didn't start with racism and then get exploitation. We started with exploitation and then we got racism to make us feel like this was just the way things are. Um, marginalization doesn't just happen. You know, white supremacy pushes certain populations to the margin. So, um, the it's a heartbreaking thing when you, when you drill down and you describe what you just described about Mm -hmm. how young people are, you know, kind of taught to almost apologize for themselves or feel like second class citizens. And then it's even more heartbreaking when you realize that's by design that is by design. Um, And as people who spent a lot of energy, put a lot of our heart and soul into collegiate revenue sports, um, it's a deep grief that we have, that we realize this way of life that we thought was beneficial was really, was really harmful.
2: Well, that you've committed to talking about it and doing something (laughs) about it. I mean, I'm, I so admire the work that you do. So, thank you. Thank
1: thank you. And thank you for all the work that you you do. do. You've really given me so much to think about. Um, I'm actually taking a class right now in the history of North Carolina, Uh, just the overall history since Reconstruction. And I know later on in the thing we're going to be talking about the university system and how William Doctor Friday is regarded in, in in North Carolina culture? And boy, you really gave me some things to think about. That this one thing that they the Knight Commission installed to try to prevent is actually the thing that is perpetuating the event they're trying to prevent. <laughs> it's so up upside down to me.
0: an informative discussion with Victoria Jackson. So much to think about. So, what are some of your takeaways, John?
1: Well, with the scenario that's unfolding at North Carolina right now, I can't help but think about the power that the presidents or the chancellors in the University of North Carolina's uh, situation, that those leaders of the university, the power that they have People need to understand that it's the presidents that actually make the decisions within the NCAA. Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, is really relatively impotent, and the presidents can make all these decisions. And just as Chancellor Guskowitz at uh, uh, the University of North Carolina made the decision that, with the help of others, but made the decision that we're going from... uh, uh, live learning to remote virtual learning, he could very easily make the decision that, as for the University of North Carolina, we're not going to move forward with ball sports. People, I think, need to understand he has the power to make that decision. He's making a decision not to do that.
0: Well, yes, and... I can understand it's. it would be hard to make that decision if you're in the Power 5 conference if everybody else in your conference isn't going to make that decision. I think um, another power broker in this that is not the NCAA are the conferences. Um, if the ACC conference head said the ACC won't be playing football this this season or we're not going to play football till the spring or something like that. Then, then the schools would, you know, have cover for that call with their alumni and stuff like that. I agree that Kevin is making the wrong call, or maybe you didn't even say that I'm saying Kevin's making the wrong call, but I also think that that the conferences have a lot of power in, um, you know, doing the right thing, which is basically what you're saying is do the right thing. That well, it's not, it's clear.
1: Well, I've thought a long time ago, and I've said this for a number of years that I think with regards to the Power Five football conferences, that is the SEC, ACC, and Big 12, which are continuing to play and the Big 10 and Pac-10 is uh, uh, Pac-12 as well. Mm-hmm. Those conferences Uh, are going to split off from the NCAA with regards to football and form their own organization. I think this might be the time when they really split away, and I wouldn't be surprised if next season even, uh, a year from now, those Power Five conferences are not associated with regards to football, and football only have – no association with the NCAA. Because as of right now, I agree, the ACC is in and of itself uh, with regards to football, Mm -hmm. as is the SEC with regards to football, not with regards to other Mm -hmm. uh, uh, conferences, or not with regards to other sports. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an important thing to look forward to here in the coming years, how that unfolds.
0: Yeah, any other takeaways?
1: i think it'll be interesting to see i've got a lot of friends and some relatives even that are mixed up in college football right now and well i'm holding them all close to close to my heart and prayer
0: yeah i mean i'm thinking about the players too um kevin blackstone who's been a a guest on going deep um tweeted the other day and said if anybody had any doubt that revenue athletes on college campuses are employees. Those doubts should have evaporated at this point, especially for schools in which the student body is not on campus. They don't think it's safe for them, but yet football players are, and the schools are still saying they're gonna play football. Um, there is, There are a few players who've opted out of the season, but. Um, as John and I both know that, you know, that's a big risk for a player to take to say, I'm going to opt out of a season, even when my team is playing. So the, the, the stakes are high and the players do have power and some, some of the players have organized and really, um, you know, called on their conferences and their schools to make sure that they'll be safe. But the players also don't have a lot of power if their conferences and universities insist on pressing on. Um, and we all know if, we're, if, we're, if we've we learned anything about coronavirus, is that you get a hundred bodies sweating and breathing hard <laughs> and um, in proximity to each other. Um, it's gonna be tough for there to not be um, some cases of COVID on these teams, and we've seen that in baseball, and we've seen it in the NFL. So I'll just be praying for.
1: And we've for, seen it in college. And we've seen we'll it. In continue college. to.
0: Yes, and we'll we will be praying for all these players. And I'm grateful for Victoria's voice. She's been immersed in the in these questions of um, justice in collegiate sports for a long time, and she. She does add a lot to the conversation because um, she brings a historical perspective to it and also the perspective of somebody who was a competitive collegiate athlete. So um, thank you so much, Victoria Jackson, for giving us a deeper way to think about whether there should be a football season in fall 2020. We hope you'll join us next time on Going Deep.
1: been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep@bpr.org, at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.